My name is Bruce Steffes. I'm a general and non-cardiac thoracic surgeon. Uh, in 1997, through a series of, uh, of uh, the Lord beating on my head, uh, I quit, uh, quit practice and decided that he was going to be the center of my life instead of me. Uh, I have been involved with medical missions since that time, and uh, I'm presently the executive director of the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons. So I've had some rather broad experience uh, since that time. We're going to talk about the problem of acute uh, abdomen in the um, tropical medicine uh, setting. Uh, please uh, interrupt me at any time. This is kind of a wide-open kind of uh, thing. I've chosen to emphasize some of those things which are a little bit more specific uh, for some of the tropical things, but I will give you the caveat is that much of this is based on Africa and Asia. Um, if there are particularly unique things to South America, I'm afraid I don't know them, and we'll have to get somebody else up here to, to answer that. So let's see if we can get here. Oops, go ahead. All right. What's important to, to realize is that when we're talking about general surgery or, or abdominal pain in the developing world, it's certainly different. Uh, you have to come in with a different paradigm. Uh, we're going to come in, and if you have a person who has a certain set of presentations in your environment, you have now learned to jump automatically and prioritize, well, it's probably this diagnosis, and it's probably this one, and that one's really rare. Of course, in these very environment, that may not be true. So you have to be conscientiously ready to change your priority and not make assumptions about it as well. The other thing that, of course, is very real in the developing world is, is you don't see it early. You see it late. And uh, we have gotten so good at picking up early disease that sometimes we're not real familiar with the late disease. So keep that in mind as well. A very real uh, thing, unfortunately, is that there are very few caregivers uh, available. In uh, South uh, Sub-Saharan Africa right now, there are approximately one surgeon of any kind for every quarter million people. And in rural areas, one for every 2.5 million people. That means that in sub-Saharan Africa right today, there are 56 million people who will need surgery today. And a number of them will die. Uh, and so this is a very real, real problem. And it, it's a problem of limited resources, not just for you, but for them as well in terms of transportation. Uh, if uh, Kentucky uh, were in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, there would be four surgeons. Three of them live in that Lexington, or three and a half of them. And the rest of you would do your best on $200 a year a year to get there, okay? And so that's the reality of what we're facing. Um, there are certain diseases that we tend to think of quite frequently. We think about diverticulitis. We think about acute and chronic cholecystitis, uh, appendicitis, small bowel adhesions uh, causing problem. In many of the countries, those are rarities, and, and yet those are the common things for us. Uh, there are other diagnoses that are seen more commonly. Uh, primary peritonitis. I suspect most of us haven't seen a case of primary peritonitis in the United States in the last couple of years. Uh, perforated duodenal ulcers, because we've wiped out duodenal ulcer disease to a great extent, and certainly not to the point it actually perforates. A volvulus. Uh, in many areas, that's the leading cause of bowel obstruction, and yet we see it very, very rarely. Uh, adult intussusception. Again, rare thing in the United States. Uh, tuberculosis. Uh, causing peritonitis, and then pig bell that we'll talk about a little bit more. So what are the diagnoses? There's a three different series that we looked at that were kind of interesting. For uh, abdominal pain in Ghana, interestingly enough, their most common diagnosis was appendicitis, which kind of goes counter to what we've talked about. But they, they live a much, in, at least in, around the university, they're more of a Western-style diet. They did, however, see perforated typhoid. Not many of us have seen perforated typhoid in the last week or so, so it's uncommon here in the United States. Uh, there was a series uh, done by the residents in Gabon, and, and they looked at incarcerated and strangulated hernias as being their most common cause for serious abdominal problems, again, followed by appendicitis, which is intriguing to me because I can't quite figure that one out, uh, volvulus, adhesive small bowel obstruction, perforated typhoid. At Tenwick, sorry, I'll get this it's acting up on me today. At Tenwick, um, they looked at their leading abdominal problem was volvulus and then appendicitis and then perforated ulcer disease, trauma, typhoid, and small bowel obstruction. I think around here in the United States, we have this expression that if you hear hoofbeats, it's horses, not zebras. You have to realize when you're there, the hoofbeats are zebras and not horses. So keep that in mind. I've got a case for you. This is courtesy of Jim Radcliffe, who's running around somewhere. I don't see him in the room. He's around this area from the highlands of Papua New Guinea. This is a five-year-old boy. He went to a pig feast uh, five uh, days before. He's had severe abdominal pain for four days with fever, nausea, diarrhea. 
He's had abdominal cramps. Every time he eats and drinks, his pain gets worse. And his white count is 14,400. Initially, when he came in, his abdomen was really relatively unremarkable. His pain was more every time he ate, his pain got worse. If I put that in a 60-year-old woman, what would your diagnosis be? It would be ischemic gut, okay? This is a history of ischemic gut, but it's in a five-year-old. That doesn't make sense. So what's your diagnosis? Pig bell. Good. Everybody knows pig bell, okay? And pig bell, of course, is pigeon for pig belly, okay? Um, so they treated him with um, NPO. Uh, they put a nasogastric tube down him. They gave him uh, broad-spectrum antibiotics, including anaerobic coverage. Uh, the NG tube was described as dark. His diarrhea was described as dark, and his abdomen became acutely surgical over the next day or two. So, uh, any change in your diagnosis? Or are we still going with pig bell? Okay. Now, the real thing for everybody is looking at me, what in the heck is pig bell? Let's talk about that. All right. It is pig bell. Uh, it's called enteritis uh, uh, necrotans or necrotizing enteritis. It looks just like necrotizing enterocolitis when we see it uh, in little babies, uh, and occasionally we'll see it in, a, in adults as well. It was really, if you go back in the literature, they talk about this going back clear to medieval Europe. And we saw it in World War II, especially in Germany. And the uh, reality in both these, it was severe protein malnourishment. And we saw it in Germany because then we started dumping all sorts of food into the country. They overate and got into some serious trouble uh, with this. And back then it was known as gut fire, uh, which is a pretty good uh, description of anybody that's ever had peritonitis. It feels like, like gut fire. Uh, it resurfaced in Papua New Guinea in the 1960s, and at one time it was actually the most common cause of acute abdominal pain in the highlands of uh, Papua New Guinea and uh, became the most common cause for laparotomy. It's more prominent in males, and again, look at the cultural issue. This is not a sexual thing. It's that the males get preference, so they're, they're encouraged to eat. Who cares if the girls do? Um, 70% of them are between age 1 and 10. Why not before age 1? Because the mom has antibodies. And so the baby is protected by maternal antibodies. Um, the kids up to age 10, up to age 10, you can't compete for food. So you're the ones who starve the most. If you look in any of our cases of Quashiorco or Merasmus, it's almost always in that same age group. Uh, it occurred more commonly in the dry season. The reason for that is you're more likely to have a, a pig feast in the dry season than you were in the rain. And so that's how that uh, turned out. Please, there are some seats. Uh, we are not allowed to have anybody sitting on the floor. So please come and, if everybody can, kind of move in and appreciate that. Thank you. Yes. It, well, it's, it's a toxin. It's a food poisoning, literally. We'll talk about it. It's due to Clostridium perfringens, okay? Uh, type C, which is the same thing as, uh, for those of us that are older, Clostridium welchii, okay? And this is the one that causes botulism. And botulism is a type A exotoxin, but they also produce as a type C. Why do we not have trouble with type C? Because we're all nourished, and our proteases will tear down that toxin. But if you get these little kids um, that uh, don't have it, they're protein malnourished, they don't have enough uh, trypsin, and then actually, as we'll see in the next slide, add a diet to it, the protease will attack the GI tract, and it causes the uh, gut to become inflamed and literally can cause the artery to go into enough spasm that you get necrosis. It's an ischemic problem. Uh, the trypsin here in Papua New Guinea has it for two reasons. Number one is they're malnourished, and number two, they have a diet that's very, very rich in sweet potatoes, and, and the classic uh, dish is called cow cow. Uh, and also, they've got a very high level of ascaris load. And ascaris itself has an anti-trypsin effect, probably protective. It, they'd like not to be digested by the GI tract. And so if you have lots of worms, you're eating lots of sweet potatoes, and you're malnourished, your trypsin doesn't work. And therefore, if your trypsin doesn't work, the uh, type C exotoxin attacks your, your GI tract. And then when you have these... Uh, you, you have these little kids that have been on carbohydrate, 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 and carbohydrate, and they're getting a chance to get some meat. Uh, it turns out that that really triggers clostridial growth, and it will develop this uh, C exotoxin in that environment. Uh, what do you see pathologically? Uh, they've got a, a dysenteric kind of stool. There's blood and pus in there. 
Uh, literally what's happening is you're sloughing the lining of your GI tract. Uh, it's a transmural infarction, not an infection, it's an infarction. Uh, and the gas gangrene and those kind of things, it looks literally like necrotizing enterocolitis that we see in neonates, okay, and see occasionally elsewhere. It affects the jejunum more than the ileum, the ileum more than the cecum, and the cecum more than the colon. So the higher it is, the more uh, effect this has. Why? Because that's where the bacteria are. And so as it gets down, it just is, there's less and less bacteria. Pigbell comes in four different kinds. Uh, the, the preliminary cases uh, are just an acute diarrheal uh, stage, and usually it's undiagnosed because these kids are just a little bit sick, okay? And everybody says, kid, you ate too much, you know, but it, it was uh, clostridial doing this. Uh, there's a subacute surgical aspect. These ones, the type uh, 3 kids, they present much, much later. They're a complication of more severe disease, but they didn't come to operation. Uh, the thing that's important here is look at that mortality, 49%. It really is a significant disease. The acute surgical type, uh, those are the ones that are obvious. They come to a surgical abdomen. They'll get operated on. Uh, their problem is the ileus, the small bowel obstruction. And uh, if they heal, because you've lost all this, the mucosa, you start to have series of stenoses, and that's that type 3 type. And then there's the acute toxic. These are the kids that come in in full overwhelming sepsis. Uh, they're immunologically naive. These are the young kids, and they tend to die. Normally, this will happen within 48 hours. Uh, they'll start to get sick with that. They have this colicky abdominal pain, and then as the mucosa sloughs, they get sicker and sicker. Excuse me. Uh, the most important thing in making the diagnosis, high index of suspicion. Uh, there are serological tests that are available, but uh, they're rare. You can't find them. And as uh, that's become less and less of a, a priority in money, for the government, so these tests are not being made. You can do anaerobic cultures, but as you're well aware, in most of the hospitals where we are, we're like if we can get any culture, let alone anaerobic culture. Uh, and so it's high index of suspicion. Anything on examination, high white count, a really acute abdomen, uh, if you have gas in the small bowel, in the wall, any of those signs, that would give you a clue. Sorry. Uh, you're going to treat them just by taking care of this overwhelming uh, sepsis, uh, first and foremost, uh, using, again, anaerobic uh, antibiotics. This thing is being fussy today. I'm sorry. Uh, concomitantly, you're going to treat the ascaris at some appropriate time. A lot of these kids are, have malaria, so you're treating that simultaneously. The two aren't really necessarily related in this acute situation. Uh, Antiserum is almost never available anymore. Hyperalimentation is equally available in most of our mission hospitals. Uh, not going to happen. Okay. Um, so the, the decision for surgery is basically that of a clinical examination. This is an acute abdomen that's getting worse. And so uh, their white count is rising, their abdomen is getting more rigid, their fluid requirement, etc. What you have to do is an exploratory laparotomy and resect the dead areas and put them back together. And the questions you face then at that time is how much do you resect? Uh, do you do ostomies? Uh, do you, who do you do second looks on? Kind of the classic stories. What do you find there? You find these thick loops of bowel. Uh, the mesenteric nodes are usually huge in them, and you have, I'll show you these other so-called tiger striping, which means that the vessels have this little red lines across the bowel. Uh, they have uh, skip lesions that will be kind of like Crohn's. that will be normal and abnormal and normal. Uh, and uh, if you open it up, there's mucosal ulcerations, and sometimes they'll perforate. So these are these huge lymph nodes. You can see them sitting there right in the middle uh, as well. Uh, this tiger strapping doesn't really show up. You can see it a little bit here, but just this, these lines going all the way across it, again, uh, is an area of inflamed bowel. And that bowel is thickened as well uh, when you feel it. Uh, here's some skip lesions. You can see the normal gut in the middle and the abnormal gut uh, a little bit higher up. If you open it up, there's all these different mucosal lesions where it's attacked. How do you avoid it? There actually is an excellent vaccine, but it's an orphan drug, and the government no longer pays for it. So instead, they've made a decision they'd rather let the little kids die. Okay? And so, unfortunately, it's very hard to get this, uh, this drug anymore. Uh, it was used very extensively in the eight, 1980s and 1990s, uh, and the cases dropped by 80% uh, in success rate, but then it became too expensive, and uh, manufacturers have eventually quit making it. That's sad. How do you, uh, how do you f uh, really do this from a public health standpoint? Well, obviously... Feed the kids some protein between pig feasts, 
um, help them with their general nutritional status. One of the issues is that the spore of Clostridia doesn't get killed until 95 degrees centigrade, but in the Papua New Guinean highlands, water boils at 95 degrees. So you really have to overcook the food in order to actually kill the spores as well. Uh, again, obviously getting rid of Ascaris helps as well. All right, we're going to move uh, from Papua New Guinea to the country of Togo. Uh, for those of you that don't know where Togo is, it's on the underside of Africa next to Ghana. Okay? Uh, it's about 55 miles wide, 300 miles long, very small little country. This is a little Togolese boy. Uh, presented in the dry season with a history of fever and malaise, had intermittent nausea and mild diarrhea. He had been treated for malaria. He got worse 48 hours ago, and then he shows up to our hospital today. He hadn't eaten since then. What's your diagnosis? Typhoid. Typhoid. Anybody who has ever seen typhoid faces, this diagnosis is made from across the room. You walk into the room, that dull, heavy-lidded, kind of lethargic look is absolutely classic for typhoid. It's literally typhoid facies. That's what uh, they've described for years. Typhoid is a four-week disease. Uh, we have a, a misconception in many of our medical schools. We talk about bloody diarrhea and that sort of thing. Very, very uncommon. Uh, what they'll do is... Okay, what happened here? Okay, what will happen here is there's an incubation period of about a week or so, and the clinical illness is in the last three weeks. Uh, you'll get the hyperplastic uh, nodes, the area will be necrotic. The ulcerations for perforation that are going to cause the abdominal uh, catastrophes really don't happen until the third week. And then if you survive, uh, you start to recover from there. First uh, two uh, weeks, our fever, headache, and abdominal pain, very nonspecific. They just don't feel good. And for those of you that are familiar with malaria, it really fits the same thing. Uh, they don't tend to have the shaking chills, but a lot of these kids that are exposed to malaria on a regular basis don't have that shaking chills either. Uh, and they just don't really feel good. And they get treated for malaria. Every one of them will go to the local doc and they'll get treated for the malaria and they don't get better. At uh, week three is when we tend to see them in the hospitals and they're in that typhoidal state. They're starting to get confused and they're beginning to be toxic. If they survive, they'll defervest during the fourth week. The classic uh, thing that you see in typhoid fever, for those of you who have not seen it, is the white count is low, not high. Now, once you perforate, it can go high, but it, when they come in, it's actually lower than you would expect. You see this kid, uh, he looks sick, but his lab work doesn't go along with it. The only test that's really worth anything is culture. If we go back to my previous discussion, we can't get the cultures, okay? I do want to mention just briefly the Whitehall test or Vidal test. Uh, is I, I basically want to, I use what I, what I call a one-shilling test. Do they have typhoid? <laughs> it's, it's equally good with the Vidal test, okay? Uh, the Vidal test helps you with serological over time, but in an acute situation is darn near useless. Because if you think they've got typhoid and the test is positive, you say they've got typhoid. But if you think they've got typhoid and they don't have the, don't have positive test, you think they probably still have typhoid. Okay, so it really is nearly useless. A lot of money is wasted uh, with that as well. Um, if you think that these uh, kids are going to need to have surgery, uh, they need appropriate and aggressive resuscitation to the operating room. They need huge amounts of fluid. They're full-blown septic shock. They need anaerobic coverage. And in this situation, you're not treating the typhoid sepsis so much as you're treating the anaerobic sepsis from the GI tract, okay? Um, traditionally, uh, we used to use ampicillin and chloramphenicol, but uh, since you can buy those on the marketplace in big piles, and they'll, they'll buy two and they'll buy three, and that's what the, we've developed hugely resistant uh, typhoid. Uh, it turns out the fluoroquinolones are no longer valuable either. They were a great drug for about three weeks. Um, and uh, <laughs> then they became uh, uh, basically resistant for those as well. Now third-generation cephalosporins are probably the drug of choice, uh, but expensive uh, and, of course, require uh, intravenous uh, carry as well. Now the most important thing about this little child, obviously this kid is sick, no question about it, okay? When you take kids to the operating room, the one sad part about this is this story. Oops, sorry. We have to understand that no matter what we do as medical missionaries, 
our highest priority is to teach them about Jesus Christ. And I can do all the temporal work in the world, and it may not make a difference. Uh, Dr. Bob Cropsey, who's wandering around here, if any of you meet him. Uh, Bob is one of my heroes, and he was a surgeon here at this Togo hospital. But he tells of a story in which a kid, 14 years old, came in, critically ill but coherent. He did a world-class kind of resuscitation, put in a central line, uh, gave him the fluids, took the acronym, did a brilliant surgery, and the kid never woke up afterwards. And the nurse came to him and said, Bob, why would you do that? And this will surprise you, but surgeons have egos. I know that that will surprise you. But, you know, Bob immediately responds, well, what do you mean? I just did this phenomenal resuscitation. I did everything right and all that stuff. She says, no. Why did you take him to the operating room without telling him about Jesus Christ first? And if you can get Bob to tell you that story, the tears will still run down his face. Our priority in this situation is to tell them about Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, this kid, of course, is too too sick for that. But never forget the real reality is, is that neither of us have tomorrow guaranteed to us. And so we need to tell people about Jesus Christ on every opportunity. Uh, when you do surgery for enteric uh, surgery, uh, enteric fever, obviously, uh, peritonitis, that's an easy call. That's, that's not a big deal. Um, what do you do on a chronic situation? We all know the stories of typhoid and Mary, and we hear the stories about taking out their gallbladder, and, and now they're cured. The answer is taking out your gallbladder doesn't cure anything. Uh, you take them out because they are uh, uh, got cholecystitis, not because of their, their carrier status. Uh, hemorrhage is the big issue. We, we don't think about significant life-threatening hemorrhage with typhoid fever, but it's re- darn it, but it's real. Okay. Uh, Up to 10% of the patients will bleed significantly in that third week and occasionally need surgery because of that. The problem is is that in our setting where we don't have angiography and we don't have uh, technetium scans and all that kind of stuff, it's really sometimes hard to find what exactly is bleeding. Fortunately, the wall is usually abnormal enough you can find it. Perforation is the big uh, difference. Mortality, once they perforate, 40%. Okay, so it's real. Um, there's some series, if you get really good at it, in the middle of the typhoid fever, you make the diagnosis early, you jump on it sooner, you can get that down to around 10 or 15%. But if you look at the whole literature, it's still very, very significant. How do you know when to operate? The thing we look for is pneumoperitonitis. Uh, okay, if I, if I see a pneumoperitoneum on x-ray, clearly something's perforated, I need to be there. But all the rest of these, any of you that are in the NICU, these are the same diagnosis, same reasons we make use to operate on little kids. Uh, for necrotizing enocolitis, a mass that doesn't go away and they're still sick, uh, diffuse peritonitis despite the lack of air, persistent sepsis, medicine doesn't work, and uh, high index of suspicion. Uh, those are all the indications that we're going to operate for these kids. Uh, classic pneumoperitoneum, you can't see them particularly well up here, but the one on the left, that, that is not a stomach bubble there. That is a huge pneumoperitoneum uh, in there as well. What do you find? You find these punched out ulcers. The perforations in typhoid fever are actually an autoimmune response to the Peyer's patches. Remember, Peyer's patches are like lymph nodes in the terminal ileum and the jejunum. Uh, they, they literally get so good at attacking this, they, they necrose. And so you get these round, punched-out holes. If you're lucky, it's like this one on the right where there's a single punched-out hole. Uh, the other side, not at all uncommon, two, three, four, five. You'll notice these are exactly on the anti-mesenteric border. That's where these Peyer's patches uh, always are. How do you operate on them? If there are multiple perforations, if there's only one, two, or three, you just tend to oversew those. If there are more than that, you usually tend to figure out a loop that has all of them and take that loop out and sew them back together. You do not put an ileostomy in in this situation, okay, unless literally it's your only choice of saving their life. Uh, an ileostomy is not an operation. It's a disease, uh, and especially so in these environments where we don't have nutrition and, and ostomy devices and all that kind of stuff as well. Um, I still am a strong believer in aggressive peritoneal debridement. I think getting all that dead stuff out of there is a good idea. Consider retention sutures because these kids tend to be malnourished and tend to fall apart. Uh, consider a second look operation, you know, a scheduled at two days. If you left something that was suspicious uh, or it was just it was a really junky abdomen, might operate on them again. Um, do realize that in this situation, when you've got a 40% mortality, these folks, as sick as they are, will tolerate a negative laparotomy being wrong better than they'll tolerate you waiting until, they're, until you're 100% right because they'll, they'll die with that. Another fascinating thing that will occur, especially in kids, is typhoid cholecystitis. 
the uh, salmonella tends to uh, live in the back in the uh, gallbladder itself. Uh, it's this thing's going on its own. I'm not sure what's going on here. Um, I wonder if there's a switch. Got switched. Um, a lot of times, because we don't expect eight-year-olds to have acute cholecystitis, we miss that diagnosis, and so often it's a delayed diagnosis. They've either perforated or they've got gangrene on there as well. Um, talked about that. Now, bowel obstruction is a real common problem. It's just that it's not the problem that we usually see. We see adhesions. There we see something else. We have a lot fewer adhesions there because I already went to back and told you there's only one point. Uh, one surgeon for every two and a half million people, so there isn't much surgery done. So uh, adhesions are really relatively uncommon. Uh, there is much lower risk of colon cancer. Uh, Dennis Burkett proved all that a long time ago with the whole thing of um, fiber in the diet, etc. Uh, they do have incidence of lymphogranuloma venereum in the rectum, and that's occasionally. So here's an, here's an eight-year-old female. Presents with abdominal swelling, pain, and vomiting. White counts 14,200. Has a 6% eosinophilia. Hemoglobin is 8.9, and you could palpate a sausage-shaped right lower quadrant mass. Diagnosis. Ascariasis. Okay. Anything else? No. Ascariasis. Okay. <laughs> there, I mean, there really isn't much else about this. Uh, on this x-ray, I don't know. Let's see if we can get it to show up. That shadow right here, and over there, you can actually, you can't see it well on this, but there's actually, you could on the plain x-ray see the worms and the air around them, this tangled little little mess uh, that was there. So look on plain films even. Uh, roundworms are very, very common in this world. Uh, they cause problem in only two conditions. One is when they migrate, and one's when they don't. Uh, so... Uh, <laughs> The migrating worms. Uh, all of you sat through the lectures in medical school about Loeffler's eosinophilic uh, pneumonitis and all sort of stuff. And what happens, of course, with the ascaris is that uh, as they migrate, uh, one of the things that they'll do is get into the lungs, and you'll have that uh, issue uh, there. Uh, when you've had surgery, you hate somebody with ascariasis because you'll be sewing the anastomosis shut, and all of a sudden the head of some worm will come out through there. Um, and they will... Uh, the problem is they do that. At, I don't mind them doing that while I'm looking at them. It's when they do it 12 hours after I've closed that becomes a problem. And so we do have problems with uh, perforation. As those ascarises, as they um, as they migrate, uh, they love to go up um, the GI tract. Now, they will stay where they're supposed to until they get upset. And when they get upset, whether that's drugs, anesthesia, fever, or something, then they start to migrate. They're trying to find someplace else to go. And uh, so that's when you get the ones coming up through the mouth and through the nose, uh, that kind of thing. I remember the last uh, uh, upper GI endoscopy I did, I couldn't figure out. I had told them to take out that NG tube, and I was really kind of annoyed with them until I realized that I looked down at the patient. No, they don't have an NG tube. I was looking at an ascaris uh, looking right back up at me um, uh, with that. Um, but they do migrate, and they migrate into the biliary tree and into the pancreas. So we can get pancreatitis and biliary disease. This is an acute cholecystitis in a child, a 10-year-old, okay? And uh, it had perforated the gallbladder over there. But when they took the gallbladder out, these were the worms that were in the gallbladder itself, causing trouble. When they don't migrate, they also get into trouble because in these situations where there's this constant superinfection, uh, of course, it's from stool con contamination, and so they're picking up the eggs constantly. And so rather than a few worms, they're having thousands of worms. Uh, they can actually uh, get down to the small intestine and have so many of them that it causes a mechanical obstruction, a plug, uh, if you will. Uh, that varies widely. It's interesting. If I go to Kenya, I'll expect to do two or three of these a week. If I go to West Africa, I don't see them. Now, there's not much nutritional, uh, not much... Uh, Difference in terms of, you know, the number of toilets or that kind of thing in these various countries. Obviously, there are some uh, habits uh, that are, are occurring as well. Uh, often, they'll come in with a history of recent anti-helminthic treatment. They were doing fine. They went to the local clinic. They got some obendazole, and now they obstruct. And what happened is as long as the worms were alive, they were moving out of the way of the food. And then once they got dead, they just sat there as a plug. Uh, your physical examination, you can, uh, on examination, sometimes feel these. Plain x-ray, occasionally feel these as well. Contrast studies, uh, if you have gastrographin, uh, works pretty nicely in this situation. 
Uh, you don't want to use barium if you can help it because you're going like, to have a good chance of operating and you don't want to barium peritonitis as well. Ultrasound and CT scan will pick them up uh, sometimes if you've got them as well. Now, what do you do with this? If they come in and there's no peritonitis, they're just obstructed, you rehydrate them and put nasogastric decompression, and most of them will resolve on their own. There's a real argument about whether or not you try to kill the worms, and if so, what you do with them. Some people would argue, leave them alone, they'll normally resolve. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, we use mobendazole, and we're kind of used to using that, but the problem with those drugs albendazole, mobendazole, is that they're cidal. They kill the things, and so now they just sit there like a rock. Um, the drug that um, we can't use in the United States anymore, except for your dogs, uh, is piperazine. But over there, piperazine actually kind of paralyzes them but doesn't kill them. And so there are people who feel very, very strongly that you should use piperazine instead of albendazole. I've never seen a good study to answer that, uh, you know, what is the complication, how many go to surgery and so forth. It would really be a great study to, to have in this situation. Uh, it, it's a religious argument. It's at the level of politics, okay? Um, as a general rule, go along with whatever they do in that hospital because it, it just saves your ears. Uh, they just, yeah. So uh, what is obviously, uh, one of the things that has been reported is the use of hypertonic saline enemas. That may be a case where the cure is worse than the disease. Um, public health education is really the, the long-term issue with these. Now, when you uh, operate on them, uh, if you get to that point and you get in there and you literally see the small intestine engorged with this bolus of worms, uh, if possible, you can milk them down through the terminal ileum so you don't open the GI tract. Uh, I haven't had great success with that, but I've heard of people who can't. Uh, what you usually have to do is cut the gut transversely, take your sponge forceps, and just start fishing. Okay? Uh, you can go fishing afterwards. These actually are a pretty good bait uh, from, from what I've been told as well. Uh, the most important thing is that GI tract is just full of bacteria. Do your best to make sure you don't contaminate everything as well. Use antibiotics. And because some of these worms may not be dead, go back to my discussion about closing and the worms sticking out through there, uh, make sure you've really sewn that uh, closed. About a third of these guts... Uh, will require resection. You can't get them out except to actually cut out the small intestine with the worms in it. Uh, here's a, a case. In this case, uh, on the plane film, again, doesn't show up with projection, but you can see a loop. You see it right there? Just full of worms. And uh, this is what we pulled out of this little seven- or eight-year-old kid. Okay. I tried real hard. Russ White, who's at Tenwick, and we were in the OR, and it, we were pretty punchy at that point. Uh, but we've got this, I have this, had this wonderful video of him showing how the proper way to eat ascaris and, you know, so forth. But um, I couldn't find it. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, one of the problems in terms of resection, one of the problems you have is this big loop will act and volvulize. And you'll come in with a dead loop. And that's not unusual, a quarter to a third of the cases, depending on how long. Another case study. This is a 29-year-old male. It has 24 hours of marked abdominal distension. Uh, super umbilical cramping pain, obstipation, white counts, 12,000, a 3% eosinophilia, no peritoneal signs. What's your diagnosis? Yeah, what, what kind of ovulus? This is a sigmoid volvulus, okay? What you see is a so-called bent inner tube sign. For those of you who are rural farmers, that's a horse's butt, okay? <laughs> Looks exactly the same thing. Uh, when you see that... Um, that's a classic example of a volvulus as well. Sigmoid volvulus in our environment is that of older people, almost always nursing home. Very unusual to have it younger, but not in large areas of Africa where it can occur in the, in the, even in the teens. I've seen an eight-year-old with volvulus. There seems to be a genetic component to it, and then there's a fiber roughage component to it as well, and how to sort that out is unclear. Most commonly in males, for reasons that frankly don't make a lot of sense to me, it is the most common form of GI volvulus that we have. These people will be fine one minute, and then they're miserable the next, and this gut is distended, causing obstruction, and the pain from the distension as it gets worse, and they get more and more miserable. Of course, they're not able to pass any stool. If they do, they pass it right at the beginning and empty out their rectum, and then there's nothing more to come through. Uh, many of them will tell you that they've had previous episodes, and as they walked around and writhed a bit, it suddenly relieved, and they had a large bowel movement, and they were fine. Okay. 
Um, but uh, as it gets worse, of course, you can have both from a um, uh, reflex and from a mechanical aspect, you can actually have small bowel um, reflux and, and nausea, vomiting, etc. The diagnosis is an abdomen that's massively distended. You do a rectal examination. There's usually no stool left in there as well. And you had that, that really uh, significant uh, characteristic x-ray and no rectal gas. So what do you do? You resuscitate them with fluid and electrolytes quickly. You consider antibiotics. Um, if there is no peritonitis, you can do a rigid sigmoidoscopy. It works better than a flexible one. Uh, this is where it's very, very important to have the intern there. Uh, because of what you do is once you get the scope in there and you get up to the point, you just say, now look right there. Now push just a little bit, okay? And then you're stepping out of the way because he's going to be covered, okay? Um, that, that's uh, surgeon humor, okay? I mean, I'm sorry. But, uh, if they have uh, any evidence of peritonitis, a surgical abdomen, then surgery is required. Uh, increasingly, we're beginning to realize that uh, in the old days, we would do two, two stomas. Uh, that we can do a primary closure on the vast majority of these with the equal results. Um, what we don't do uh, is uh, do any kind of pexy, any kind of sewing that's kind of gone by the wayside. If your tube worked, okay, and your intern is still talking to you, um, what you'll do at that point is get him to put a, a tube up there, a chest tube or a rectal tube or a, a big red rubber catheter or something to keep it open, do kind of a mini bowel prep over the next day or two, get him in shape, talk to him about the Lord, and take him to the operating room and do a, a semi-elective uh, resection so that this doesn't happen again. Cecovovulus can do the same thing. It looks uh, similar on x-ray. Uh, they'll have more small intestinal issues. This is more common in females. Again, not sure I fully understand that. Uh, making that diagnosis preoperatively is more common, because, uh, more difficult, because they tend not to get that big uh, bent inner tube, they tend to have small, more small bowel obstruction symptoms as well. Uh, and so as a result, because you make the diagnosis like gangrene of the bowel and resection is important. Uh, the x-rays are only diagnostic in about one out of five, and that's why, again, small bowel obstruction. Here in the United States, we think small bowel obstruction, we think adhesions. There, you have to start thinking about these options, cancer or uh, Cecovovulus, so the weird, what we would consider relatively weird things, because that's the only thing that's left if you take out adhesions uh, as well. Uh, barium enema is very accurate, but in most of the mission hospitals, we have neither fluoroscopy or the barium, so that kind of limits that a little bit. If you can see it, the classic thing is the so-called bird's beak. Just by squeezing that, the contrast is coming up. Occasionally, you'll actually see that as an air contrast. You see the air coming to a to a bird's beak. Uh, colonoscopy, especially in the cecum, not worth the effort. Okay, you can't can't get there very successful, and it's dangerous. Here is a, a one of the quote classic ones, which tells you how difficult the unclassic ones are. Uh, that funny dilated uh, huge loop that you measure, it's in the right upper quadrant usually because of the volume it flips up there. Uh, decompressing alone only has about a 50% uh, has a 50% recurrence. So when you operate, you don't just decompress them. Uh, there was a big uh, enthusiasm for a long time of just putting them down there and put a cecostomy tube in there or doing some circopexy. Forget it. Do a right hemicolectomy, and they do much much better, especially if it's gangrenous. Uh, the double volvulus is a fascinating concept, um, especially in. I, I've not seen this ever in the United States. Uh, I don't see it in West Africa, but I see it in the highlands of Kenya all the time. And I don't get it. I don't know what's going on here. But this is where not only the volvulus got twisted, but the small intestine got twisted with it. So you go in there, and you've got this very complex knot. And I always read these books about how you're supposed to do this, and you turn it this way. Yeah, I can never figure that out. Um, and usually, fortunately, they're dead, so I don't have to. I just, uh, at that point, resect that, those loops. Uh, and it's small intestine and colon in there. What is true there, again, don't do ileostomies. Ileostomies is a disease in this situation. Uh, you do run the risk of a short gut syndrome, and we worry about that as well. Uh, here's a classic uh, double volvus, again, and very non-diagnostic uh, with that. Okay, here's a 9-year-old, 24 hours of anorexia, increasing abdominal pain and uh, has a fever. She has just kind of a diffuse rebound. Nothing specific, can't localize it, etc. What's your differential diagnosis in this? 
differential diagnosis. What's a nine-year-old with an increasingly acute abdomen? We're in Mauritania in the island of Afro-Asia. Okay. What, what is your differential diagnosis? Appendicitis. Typhoid. Malaria. Okay. What else? TB. Parasites conceivably, depending on what's going on. The point is it's pretty nonspecific. You look up, here's a list of abdominal pain. This is what this is, okay? The problem with that is um, now we're not in a situation where you can do the usual admission orders of CBC in a CAT scan. So um, we have trouble working these up. What this child has, as it turns out, when everything is negative, is primary peritonitis. How did you find that out? Usually because you ended up lapping them. Okay, because you couldn't make that diagnosis either. Um, you could do a paracentesis if you thought about it. If you were in this risk factor and you thought about it and you tapped it, um, you, it's very, very rare here in the West. We talk about it. Here we talk about a secondary primary peritonitis. It's usually due to ascites or something. But in Africa we see it where the bacteria are there and there's no underlying pathology associated with it. Uh, it's a disease of girls almost entirely, ages 6 to 10, uh, it can occur in older females. I've seen it, but it's uh, almost always uh, males, and we don't have any idea really what causes it. It appears to be immunosuppression and malnourishment as part of it, but I don't quite get it. Uh, the rapid onset is very four, is about 48 hours. They really don't have any much in the way of symptoms. They will get significant leukocytosis, and they have severe abdominal pain. They can writhe with this. The tenderness, if you examine, is probably worse than, worse than the right lower quadrant. So, again, you think appendicitis, uh, you get in there and the appendix is normal, and you run your terminal oil and it's normal, and all you see is this kind of milky uh, fluid in there, and you do a gram stain, and it's uh, pure either E. coli or pure pneumococcus, or w usually one bacteria doing it. Um, the reason I say you make this diagnosis is because it's usually suspe you're suspicious of uh, appendicitis, so... You have to operate on those kids, but then when you've done it. Um, you can do this if you really suspect it. One option is to do this laparoscopically. Uh, of course, many of our places don't have laparoscopes and don't have CO2 and all that stuff. But doing that and just washing the abdomen out with just liters of fluid helps. Uh, doing it open uh, helps minimize some of the symptoms. You have to use broad-spectrum antibiotics because you don't know which bacteria it is as a general rule. But uh, strep, pneumococcus, and E. coli are the ones that are most classically uh, with that. Uh, if you really thought that's what it was and you did a tap and you got that, you might be able to sit on these patients because, of course, appendicitis is not going to be um, one bug as a general rule, except in most of the labs I work with in Africa, in which I'm lucky if they can find one. So I, you know, I kind of <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. Again, strep's most common. It can be anaerobic, aerobic, uh, and mixed as well. So just keep this in mind, index of suspicion, having heard of the disease, helps you make the diagnosis. Any questions, any thoughts, any problems that you've run across? So all the rest of the things, appendicitis, you treat like appendicitis. Acute cholecystitis, you treat like acute cholecystitis. You know, I mean, it's, it's pretty much uh, straightforward for the other diseases. These are just some of the uncommon things that, depending on where you go. Now, the most important thing you can do when you're faced with a complex case is ask somebody who lives there, okay? Because, you know, we have a real problem with egos and asking for help and so forth. And uh, sometimes a janitor will walk by and tell you, you dummy, it's typhoid fever, and keeps walking. You know, I mean, it's, uh, it's obvious. He's, he's seen 48,000 cases of it. You've seen your, you know, this is your first case. Uh, so, again, uh, there's, no, there's no play for pride. Ask. The nurses know a tremendous amount in this situation. They may not know all the pathophysiology and so forth, but they've seen this disease, and they're usually right. They know what's going on. Uh, it really helps. Uh, they'll say, doctor, there's a room, patient in room four, and I say, what do you think's going on? And they tell you the diagnosis, and then you walk in, yeah, I, well, I think this is, you know, so it uh, works out really well. Yes, sir? Um, can you just speak about resuscitation preoperatively? I'm all in favor of it. That was the hardest thing to learn because there's no ICU post-operative care. How do you decide when you shouldn't even surgically do it? Because it was very interesting. I think anesthesia had been worked at where I was at very well, and that they were just like, there's no point here. You know, with the limited resources, you may, there's a... 
they're not peeing, you're done. Yeah, the point here becomes a not just a medical, a medical decision, but a cultural decision. Um, it is possible for, for us in just a day or two to run up a bill that will bankrupt the entire village. And from a very practical standpoint, you know, here in the United States, we throw everything at everybody. You know, we'll do everything and we'll do a bone marrow transplant for ridiculous results and, you know, all that kind of stuff. In that environment, uh, they're going to pay this bill somewhere along or you're going to pay it. And in terms of you paying it, you're going to have to give more donations and so forth. But from a practical standpoint, that means that 20 other patients you could have treated can't be treated now because you're out of resources. So it's not a comfortable situation. When do you decide this is really not ever feasible? Uh, and so part of the answer is you have to know yourself. Part of it, you have to understand the culture. Um, one of the problems you'll get into is I've had that where I've gotten them through the operating room fine. They actually were going to do fine, but the nurses had already decided 48 hours earlier they weren't going to live, and they made sure they didn't live, which is really frustrating, okay, because they didn't bother to take care of the patients and so forth. So that is a, that's a very valid question. And someday I'll be smart enough to answer it. Uh, it's, but it's, it's very real. You have to make these very conscious decisions. You will never be comfortable with your decision. Good. Okay? Because that means your heart and your passion and your compassion are still all working. Yes? Uh, what's your approach to appendiceal abscess, lower abdominal mass on the right, not toxic, no peritonitis, send a mass for two weeks, and then come in the hospital? I sent them to invasive radiology and... Uh, <laughs> Um, the answer is they're really not sick and really not symptomatic. I tend to give them a, a week or two of antibiotics and then bring them back in six weeks for an elective resection if they ever come back. And, of course, there's a lot of debate whether or not we ever need to do that. I mean, that's, that's still not clear in the, American, in the, in the Western literature either. Uh, if they're symptomatic, I, it turns out that I can do an awful lot through a McBurney incision without much pain, and I don't bother to try to resect it. I just try to drain the pus and then figure out. And what's going on, and then make the decision with them about coming back. And you have advice on how to manage that disease of ileostomy. Sometimes that's the only thing, the safest thing to do. Not well. I mean, that's the most honest answer. Um, from a technical standpoint, make sure you're doing a truly brook ileostomy, a nice protrusion so it's dripping off, and then you have to work on some sort of device that's going to sit close to that, and, you know, I, I've used um, cat food cans and all sorts of things to try to get in there, and, and, but it's, it's really, the real problem is not so much the excoriation of the skin, it's the nutritional aspects. As you're well aware, an ileostomy, especially when fresh, can put out nine liters. Uh, I've looked on, many of our mission hospitals don't find ectreotide and all these other things, and so um, the answer is you do the best you can. And, and I literally, in that situation, make sure that I worry about their eternal healing much more than I do their, their physical healing, and then do the best I can. And it's amazing, because it turns out that many of the things that we take credit for here in the United States still turns out the great physician's doing it here as well as he is there. And uh, I've seen true miracles that I, and, and I become very humbled because I realize I didn't have anything to do with that. You know, it was the Lord who healed, and we give credit to him. It's easier for them to understand that than us, because they understand the world is spiritual. We often don't. Yes, ma'am. I lived there for a couple of years. I think I can handle your accent. Go ahead. How old are they? They're about four years old. Four years. And uh, um, another one, the first one, the first one, well, the first one to be born, because they are twins, uh, have just started walking recently. Mm. I don't know. What's the diagnosis? Uh, <laughs> I think we could put them into an, in a children's hospital. It may take us a while to find that diagnosis anyway. It sounds to me like there's some, very likely some congenital abnormalities and so forth that are 
being affected there as well. Very hard to make that diagnosis, especially in Uganda. Um, I tried real hard to build a children's hospital there and got shot out. So, uh, And there's not good care for kids in, in Uganda, unfortunately. I'm sorry. Uh, where are you? What what country? Uh, what city? Oh, sorry? Okay. Right. Don't know anybody in that area that can even help you off the top of my head. I'm sorry. We'll pray for those children. Any other questions? Yes, I'm sorry. Uh, do you have any advice for non-surgeon physicians who want to get more surgical training? I get that question about once a month, and I don't have a good answer. Uh, what people don't understand is that there are only a 1,000 medical missionaries in the world. Okay? That's it. If you add physicians, if you add nurses and other there's, there's 2,000. Um, there are less than 30 surgeons in the entire mission environment, okay, uh, meaningfully. So it's very, very difficult to find somebody in a place that will can get somebody there. So if anybody has ideas, I get this question literally every week, how can I help a family practitioner gain more surgery? The best answer is go there for six or eight months and help them and learn it and pick it up. But where to go, that's problematic uh, because there aren't many surgeons. Yes. Yes. Uh, no. As long as you close it transversely, like you would do with a peptic ulcer or something like transversely, no, a stricture is very, very uncommon. No. No. Uh, isn't that high? Not reliably. I mean, you've got the classic physical examination. Uh, if you've got uh, granulomas and things here and they've got a doughy abdomen and a partially functioned GI tract, I'm pretty good in that situation. Uh, but if they're the people who present with primary tubercular peritonitis, no. I've never come up with a really good diagnosis in that setting. Frankly, we don't have a good diagnosis in this setting. We just don't see it very much either. Often. Yeah. Yeah. Granular stuff all over stuff, and, and, and the answer is that's a, that's a bear. I don't have a good diagnosis. And you're, it's actually dangerous to try to do a paracentesis unless you can do it with an ultrasound carefully, et cetera, because everything tends, to, in some cases, gets stuck right up against it, and now you've got a nice little fistula. Um, so it's, it's a bear. Uh, many people in a high-index suspicion will actually go ahead and treat them for a while and see if they improve. If they're improved in six weeks, and the answer is, yep, it was tubercular peritonitis. But, but you don't have a, the luxury of a histopathologic diagnosis or a culture. Thank you very much.